We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Soledad O'Brien says the reckoning with racism that's happening in the news industry is a welcome Me Too moment for journalists of color. Every journalist of color has a story, she writes in a recent New York Times op-ed, where she details an early experience of racism in a San Francisco newsroom and its impact on coverage. O'Brien now runs her own media production company and uses her Twitter feed to call out shoddy journalism. A conversation with Soledad O'Brien. Join us. You're listening to Forum from KQED. I'm Mina Kim. Award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien says a seismic shift is happening in the news industry as journalists of color go directly to the public and use social media to call out racism in their newsrooms. She writes in a recent New York Times opinion piece, absent a hashtag but buoyed by this public awakening over Black Lives Matter, we have collectively inaugurated our own Me Too movement. O'Brien is founder and CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. After anchoring and reporting for years for NBC, MSNBC, and CNN, which has been a frequent target of her Twitter journalism critiques, she joins us to take your questions about journalism this moment and what happens now that journalists of color are demanding more representation and influence in newsrooms. Welcome to Forum, Soledad O'Brien. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you on. And I was immediately struck by how you opened that op-ed because it was an experience at Cron right here in San Francisco where you worked in the mid-90s. Can you tell our listeners what happened? Sure. And it's such a non-story in so many ways. I've had so many people reach out to talk about this story. And I wouldn't even put this in the top 10 of like interesting (laughs) stories that have happened to me around race and conversations around race in newsrooms. But this was the story. I was brand new at Cron. I had come uh, from NBC News where I had been a researcher and then an associate producer and started producing. And before that I had worked in local news for a long time and I had uh, been at Harvard University where I'd done a lot of writing. So I I show up at at Cron, um, woefully underpaid as a new reporter and I remember walking down the hall, Hakron, like most newsrooms have these big giant hallways. And there's a bunch of people kind of like standing together talking, which was awesome because I had no friends. I didn't know anybody in Cal- in California at all, uh, really outside of my boyfriend. And, um, and so I kind of like, you know, slide into the conversation a little bit. And they're talking about the new affirmative action hire But at that moment that I'm in, everybody sort of stops talking. And I realize (laughs) that that's me. The new affirmative action hire is me. Uh, And and it made me realize that, of course, one, it wasn't a really particularly friendly entree into my new job. Um, But very rarely are new uh, reporters, who are often young reporters, uh, framed that way, right? Um, They're not framed as this person doesn't really belong here kind of conversation. They might be framed as a new reporter, the young reporter, the person from Texas, Chicago, wherever. Uh, But often when you're talking about 
black reporters, right? The idea is that they're here for a reason and that reason is they don't really belong here. And I actually had a, a quite a good resume. I'd been one of the younger producers at NBC News. Um, and it even feels cheesy at this moment to feel like I have to defend myself mm -hmm. for something that happened almost 30 years ago. Uh, but it's it happens a lot, right? It's this sense of, well, you don't really deserve to be here. I would you, say I completely deserve to be here. But um, it was something that stuck with me because everyone's awkwardness at that moment, the conversation obviously died. And I realized I'd walked into something that people didn't want me in on. Um, and I, I think it's not an unusual experience for reporters of color. Um, but in terms of was it hurtful? Was it devastating? Did I go home and cry? No, no, and no, because I think it's so typical. I think it's just happens all the time to so many reporters of color. Yes, and it's so interesting that you say that it was such a non-story, but yet is a story, because you're right, it still happens. I mean, when I read that, it was like, oh, wow, this happens now. I mean, this happened to you between 1993 and 96 when you started at Cron, and and this is still going on. And this sense, and I think the reason that it also stays with us, even though it still happens, is that, I mean, implicit in saying you're the, quote, affirmative action hire is that you're only valued for, for your race or your gender. And, and really, you don't deserve to be here. You do not deserve to be here. And if it fact weren't for your race, then you wouldn't be here. But we all have to move out of the way and make some space for you because you're being shoved upon us uh, as you learn the ropes. And listen, I think every new reporter learns the ropes. Uh, in fact, in that group was another young reporter. We were very similar, both in age and abilities. Um, but there was this idea that no one would have ever referred to her as an affirmative action hire. She was a young woman. Um, she would just be a young green reporter. Newsrooms are full of young green reporters. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a you don't belong here. And um, and in that way, I think it's annoying more than upsetting in a lot of ways. And maybe it's just at age 53, uh, I'm no longer upset by those little things. People often talk about microaggressions. I kind of hate that word because it just sounds, um, I don't know, it sounds very clinical versus just nasty things people say that annoy you during the day and wear you down, right? I mean, day after day after day. And I, I think it's kind of a little bit like that. It's just an annoyance. Um, and then yes. you have to sort of take a deep breath and say, of course I belong here. I belong here as much as anybody else. Some people here are far better than I am. Some people here, I am better than they are, but we're all gonna put our heads down and the goal is to figure the gig out and improve. But it is a little teeny bit of a hurdle that you have to kind of like, settle back down. And when I give advice to young women, especially in newsrooms, I often have to tell them, you have to not listen to, um, you have to not get thrown by those little comments because I do think they take a little bit of psychic energy to get past them. And at the end of the day, it's pretty exhausting. But if I may, I'll tell you a better story. <laughs> and this is a story I tell young women. So I used to do uh, the morning show at WBZ TV. And, uh, because it came on before the Today Show. Today Show came on at 7.00, which meant that I had to finish up my show and then run to the morning meeting, which started at seven o'clock. So I got in, stopped at the bathroom, got in at 7.03. And there was a guy in my meeting who used to say every time, because I'd come in three minutes late, he'd say, oh, she's on CP time. <laughs> for colored people time mm -hmm. uh, because I was running late and I'd run late every day because my show didn't end till the start of the meeting and I just remember how annoyed and frustrated like that was hurtful that was a first job of mine and so upsetting and it really pissed me off and I'd go home and strategize like what clever comeback could I have what what thing could I say back what sassy remark could I say back to him and then I realized one day I left uh, after a while, I got promoted. I, I left to um, go to NBC News and then on to KRON TV. And uh, I never saw the guy again, ever again in my entire life. <laughs> and you realize like how much energy that drains from you to go home and think about clever comebacks. And, and you know, do you say something sassy? Do you complain to somebody? How do you strategy? you ignore it day after day? And so it's that psychic energy piece of it that I find sometimes um, that just sucks you dry. 
when years later, I, I mean, I'm dying to run into this guy again. Every time I tell this story, I'm like, oh, I should name him, but I won't, but I should. Uh, because it's that piece of it, right? That kind of just gets stuck in your head. And I try to tell young women, again, especially that story of, I wish I hadn't spent all my afternoons trying to come up with a clever comeback. Like I should have just focused on my work and my job and my life. I was 20 something years old in Boston. Um, and it, I do think there is a cost to that psychic energy that you spend when people make those ridiculous remarks about you. Yes, your point about the energy that it drains from you, it's so, I can relate. And, and I think also right now it feels like there is a realization and a willingness to speak more freely about how that's wrong, that that's not fair, and that we need to be doing something about it within our newsrooms from that level all the way up to to the hiring practices, to the coverage that we do. And I know we mentioned earlier about how these stories have been going on for so long, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, but do you feel like this awakening, since you called it a seismic shift, this willingness to be more vocal and more open about these experiences in the newsroom from journalists of color, do you think it's different this time? I do, actually. And part of the reason I think it's different is that there's a more of an interest in hearing these stories. Mm. I believe today, if that experience that I described at WBZ TV with a young guy, roughly my age, you know, every time I came in five minutes late to a meeting saying that I was running on CP time, I believe other people in the newsroom, I was brand new. I wasn't gonna say anything because I, I liked my job and I wanted to keep my job and I wanted to be that person who gets along with everybody. Uh, I believe today uh, people are more sensitized to that so I think someone else would have said, stop it, it's inappropriate. And I think that that's a bit of a shift, that those things have actually changed quite a bit. Um, so I do think it's a different time. And, and you know, it's interesting, after the George Floyd story event happened, um, I had a number, at least, it had to be at somewhere between maybe 15 guys who just on Twitter, I follow a zillion people on Twitter, white guys. And they would all say, you know, I always thought that when people had interactions with the police, that like, they're not Girl Scouts, right? Like there was something there. Maybe they didn't do exactly what the police said, but there was clearly something that this person brought upon himself. And I think watching for the first time the George Floyd almost nine minute chunk that they were like, wow, maybe actually some of these complaints, some of what people have been saying, some of what people in communities of color have known for a really long time. Like maybe there's some validity to that. These were not particularly conservative people who don't have friends of color. I, I would actually say the reverse. I think that they do. But the, the, the fact that they sort of admitted to me that they always felt someone wasn't blameless and watching this happen, it changed how they felt about it. I, I do believe more people have had their eyes opened. And as there's been more coverage of police brutality, a, a good example, of course, would be that elderly gentleman in Buffalo, right? Where you see um, on the video, you can see he's pushed and, and the blood actually gushing out of his mm. head. Uh, but of course, the, the police department's first response was that he fell. And I think a lot of journalists would be like, he fell. We just got a note from the police department. Here's what they said. They put out a press release. Uh, the gentleman fell. Right? And I would have typed up a story that was like, John Doe fell. And now I think people are beginning to say, now certainly with video, that, that that take often isn't accurate and that maybe we need to think about whose point of view we always elevate or think more critically about point of view. So I think that moment, I think it's an indication that the moment has kind of shifted where people are willing to understand a, another point of view that might not be their own or originally what they were thinking. We're talking with Soledad O'Brien about the reckoning with systemic racism that our nation is going through and how it's affecting America's newsroom. Soledad O'Brien is a journalist. She's CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions, host of Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien, and a longtime anchor and reporter for NBC News, MSNBC. On everything, right? And CNN. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you've done a lot. And I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation because I'm sure they have a lot they want to ask you as well. Great. The number to call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So it's heartening, uh, Soledad O'Brien, that you're getting this response, a response that you say you have not necessarily seen before, especially with regard to police violence against Black people and communities of color. And so, I mean, what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that there is more of an interest, there is more of a sensitivity, particularly in the newsroom sphere, an industry that, that prides itself on reporting on racism, but not necessarily so great at looking at it in its own space. Right. I think I think that was kind of the core of my op-ed was we we really need to actually look at some of our own numbers and our own strategies. I mean, it's it's one of the statistics that I cited talk about the number of I mean, about a third of news organizations actually have less diversity. And just objectively, when I go into newsrooms, there's not some big shift that matches really the direction the country is going. In addition, we often talk about diversity, but many of these newsrooms are actually in communities that are majority minority. So it's, I think, time for a conversation about how we think about kind of just the demographics and the diversity within newsrooms, which I have always found newsrooms really reluctant to do. Um, when I would have those conversations when I was at CNN, I was there for about 10 years, and we'd have big diversity you know, conversations. And there was a sense like, well, if you're talking diversity, now you're talking quotas, right? That same idea. You don't really belong here, but we move some stuff around to help you get in. Now, most people... I think who've spent a lot of time in newsrooms understand that newsrooms are like apprenticeships, right? You, you get better at a job by doing the job and getting good feedback and getting better. Some people come in very high talent. Some people come in with less talent and they figure it out. Some people can't manage it at all. But this idea that if you're going to hire people of color, that it must be a quota system is so incredibly offensive. Um, but I, I think the people who were discussing that at the time really didn't see it that way. They didn't think it was offensive. They just thought, well, oh, diversity means we have to institute some quotas. It's not possible that we could find a newsroom that has a lot of diversity. And also I found that if you were a diverse person, you were expected to have a lot of diversity on your team, but other people were not, that those same standards didn't really apply. Uh, and I don't know why. But there is a lot of organizations now and a lot of companies, I think, are trying to figure that out. Um, I did a great story with a guy who's a shipbuilder, shipbuilder. And he talked about how he, he basically picks his employees from the general population, right? They, uh, the, the local you know, school population, which is becoming more and more diverse. And he said, you know, it takes about eight years to create a great shipbuilder education wise. And he had a lot of his minority employees quitting at year three, which was costing him a ton of money. He put three years into training them. And all of a sudden he was like, I suddenly started caring about diversity because I couldn't figure out why are these folks leaving? And I began to realize like they didn't like the, the environment of the company, something he'd never thought about before. You know, and I don't think his point of view was like, kumbaya, we need to see more diversity. I think he was like, this is a financial problem for me. If I am pulling students who are more diverse, I need them to be successful for my company to be successful. And I think I'm seeing more of those conversations. So that also makes me more hopeful that we're, that people are beginning to really understand um, how to think about the role of diversity. But yeah, newsrooms are terrible about self-analysis, whether it's figuring out their past mistakes, really confronting diversity, or really even gender issues. They just don't necessarily want to do it. So there's a recognition of the cost of it, but also, I mean, in this case of trying to enable people of color to have influence, to have power in the newsroom, to be able to bring their full selves. There was this lovely piece I just read from Prisca Neely about, about being able to bring your full humanity to a role. How does that get achieved? I mean, you run a media company. How do you create that kind of an environment? I think it's a lot of, of listening. And I think, you know, we used to joke when my kids would say they wanted to bring their full selves, I'd be like, yeah, let's bring like 
seven percent of your full self. You know, some of your full self needs a little tiny bit of work. Um, and and you know, because I think people say that phrase a lot and don't necessarily really mean it. Like, what does it mean to bring your full self? Because if I'm coming to work in my full self, I'm in. Well, now that we're all home, I am in pajamas from the bottom down. Uh, but my question, right? It's sort of like, what does it? What does that mean to bring your full self? So we don't frame it that way in our company. In our company, it is you're here and your voice is important. So if there's something you're thinking, you need to say it. If you get to be around this table, then the onus is on you to speak up. I don't have all the answers. And if I'm wrong, you need to say, I disagree with you. And here's why. I think what happens is you have people who come around the table, but they understand that there is no real power and that they're really not supposed to speak up. I tell a story in that op-ed about when I was at Cron, I was, the, I was the East Bay bureau chief actually very briefly because I was the only reporter in the East Bay. And I was in San Francisco one day and all the executives had to drive through Oakland to come in for some reason. I think there was some traffic issue, but everybody's coming in joking, right? Oh my God, I took my life into my own hands. I had to drive through Oakland. Oh my God, it just, and no one, I mean, again, these are the people who are in early because we're having our morning meeting. So we're gonna determine what the coverage of the day is. And it didn't strike them as even slightly odd, inappropriate, um, wrong to be framing Oakland that way. And it was a joke, but not really a joke, but kind of a joke. But I'm, I, I live in Oakland. I was at the time living in Oakland, uh, shooting in Oakland all the time. And right, the joke is, I risked my life to drive through Oakland. By the way, it was on a highway, so as you know, so no one's really driving through the city of Oakland. Um, and ha, ha, ha. And I remember thinking like, so this is why our coverage is always going to be about crime and always going to be about, you know, bad things, because this is everybody's point of view on Oakland. Oakland at the time did have some crime. Well, Oakland had great stories too. Every city does. We, anybody who spent more than 30 minutes covering a, an area understands like there are great stories, there are challenging stories, there's crime, there's hope, there's joy, there's fear, there's all of the above. And I just remember number one thinking, wow, this is so interesting that they don't even see that this would be an inappropriate thing to say as they're heading into the meeting to discuss how we're gonna think about stories. But number two, I understand why any of my stories that are about positive things, I don't even wanna say positive things, that are just not, that are just counter- um, Narrative. <laughs> counter the normal, the normal narrative, if you will, quotes there, um, are really hard to get accepted because everybody believes this thing. It believes it so much that they're more than happy to joke about it in front of me, who lives in Oakland. Um, so it's just that kind of stuff that I think is really challenging. And if you're going to then be in those meetings, you have to be able to say, so I just wanna point out to you what you're doing. It's a challenging conversation because those are usually the conversations that lead you to lose your job. Not immediately, but you know, six months, nine months down the road, people think you're a pain. And that's it. You're you're you disappear. Well, Dimitri tweets so proud of Soledad O'Brien's work with gravitas, sheer composure, and unflinching reporting. She has done more for ripping down institutional racism and sexism than any other journalist. And let me see if I can quickly get Phil in here before the break. Hi, Phil. Hi. You go, Soledad. Don't let them wear you down. <laughs> on the other side, there's a lot of people that want to hear your voice on race. I grew up in San Francisco. And I graduated in 62. I could not get a trade job. I could not uh, get a city job. I could not get a factory job. You had to be a white male. I was told to go back to Africa, and I'm not African-American. And uh, they called me the N-word. It's not exclusive to only black people, African-Americans. So you keep your voice going, and you're going to make us that have had difficulties feel a whole lot better. Thank you, Soledad. Well, thank you, Phil, for the call. Um, Soledad O'Brien, she is talking about her career and her experiences, and we want to hear your opinions and experiences about news coverage, your workplaces, the thoughts on this being a Me Too moment for journalists of color, and whether you are a journalist of color who's experienced racism in the newsroom. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at KQED. Org. More with Soledad O'Brien after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking with journalist Soledad O'Brien, who, after years at working at NBC and CNN, is the chief executive of her own production company and regularly uses her Twitter feed to call out shoddy journalism that she sees in stories, headlines, and interviews. We're talking about how newsrooms should address racism and the state of journalism generally. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Call us, 866-733-6786. If you have a question or comment for Soledad O'Brien, you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or email us at Forum at kqed.org. And Marsha writes, it has been clear to me for a long time that there is something clinically and medically wrong with Mr. Trump. What is the responsible, ethical, moral role of journalists to actually address and report these observable and documented behaviors? Soledad O'Brien, your thoughts on that? Such a great question. Uh, I have always just personally felt very uncomfortable talking about uh, people's mental state, et cetera, et cetera. If if I'm not talking to someone who has examined that person, that feels to me to be uh, inappropriate. Uh, that said, I don't think what she's claiming is um, far off from many people observe. And so I think it requires conversations about, well, what is the right thing to say? My biggest complaint, and I frequently complain about the New York Times headlines, is the way they frame these presidential um, pressers, addresses, speeches, et cetera, et cetera. So for example, uh, the Rose Garden conversation, which was just uh, so much of it, not even in a complete sentence, it's like a weird rambly, uh, I mean, there's a, a million versions. You can just go look at chunks of it online. Um, yes, for 63 like, minutes, yes. Just, but, but like 63 minutes of a fire hose of just messiness, a lot of it, uh, kind of racist, kind of just, I would describe it as makes no sense. Some of the things that we're talking about, the, uh, Joe Biden and windows, I mean, really just bizarre. And yet the headline is never, that that was a bizarre conversation where the, the reporters there were brought in for a presser, but it wasn't, it was more of a, uh, of a, a president who's doing a campaign speech because he can't really do his campaign speeches. And it just the the framing of those things that are so messy and weird and inappropriate and a little bit crazy is very frequently not framed that way right what media does a lot i find and i've done this myself if someone gives you a sound bite like your your instinct is to kind of clean it up like let, let, let's tighten it up and let's you know keep the context but you know if they said um a lot at the beginning i might chop off that and pick it up here and I think that you see that a lot. You clean up what's basically a word salad. So I think if we were more, we media generally were more straightforward about some of these messy conversations, most people won't watch the entire hour long presser if that was a presser. Um, I think people would get a sense of the ramblings. It's actually why that comedian, uh, Sarah um, Cooper has been actually quite successful, right? Because she puts herself with the voice of Donald Trump and you begin to realize how kind of nutty some of these things are. Um, but I think the media has kind of failed in that regard by trying to shape it as president comes out strong in the Rose Garden or um, the president um, hangs tough or pushes back on Joe Biden. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, to frame things that are kind of crazy mm -hmm. without saying that they're kind of crazy. Well, let me go to Yoli in San Francisco. Hi, Yoli. Hi there, and actually, hi, Soledad. I don't know if you remember, but you I was going to say, together. the only Yoli I know. Oh, my gosh. We worked <laughs> together at Cron 2,007,000 years ago, spending oh, yeah. a lot of time uh, in um, in the Potrero Hill, right? Right. How and, are you, and, Yoli? You know, that was a special... I'm doing great. Thank you. Still surviving in news and uh, just want to commend you on how successful you've been and also how really pushing the whole narrative about, you know, we do need every walk of life in the newsroom because uh, I know you and I both were hired during a time where they were pushing to have more minorities in the newsroom. And, uh, you know, we lack that a lot in the newsroom today. And we were able to bring out point of views, perspectives that were not being talked about and you know to changing at one time on our rundown things like you know you would have turned aliens <laughs> to now undocumented workers and in fact just recently as of about a year or two ago um 
you know, someone used that terminology in the newsroom again, using the word aliens. And, and it became a really big discussion about it. Like, we had to really point it out to this person that, you know, that is not a terminology that is acceptable. And, you know, I, in fact, I was really quite shocked that it was even in a discussion. Here we are at, you know, at the time it was like 2018, but I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, 2018, that we were even talking about that after, you know, that was something that was dealt with back in the 90s, you know, so... Uh, it, it also means nothing. It, it like to the audience, struggle. what does that mean when you call someone an alien? Like no one ever bothers to explain what they're trying to say. It it doesn't actually make any sense. And and I think that's to me. And Yoli's exactly right. I mean, imagine two young women driving around. Yoli's a fantastic photographer, right? And think of the different kinds of stories that we'd have access to than other people might have access to in the newsroom. So you're exactly right. And you'd sort of, I, but but even beyond like no one uses that phrase. Sometimes I would say to people, but what does what, what does that even mean? Like, what are you trying to say to your audience? I used to have a, a guy, a writer who used to write army regulars. So-and-so is an army. I'm like, what is that? Like, what are you trying to say? Because most people don't understand and our jobs should be about explaining things. What Yoli, I think, really points out as well is this idea of we, we do a lot of covering of stories frequently, but with no context, right? Like we'll go into a poor community, but we won't talk about how they got that way. We don't talk about disinvestment or what happened here 50 years ago or you know anything that would set up and give you explanation. We just say, here you are in this poor community, look what they're doing here. And I don't think, again, that stories without context are helpful to an audience to understand when, when really we should be giving far more context and, and really pushing back on, um, on sort of the simplistic telling of a story as opposed yes. to what's usually a little more complicated. Well, let me thank Yoli for the call and, and ask you, Soledad O'Brien, I mean, we're talking about some some offenses that are, are fairly frequent, unfortunately, in journalism. But I'm wondering what you think are some longtime practices that have been treated as sacred, that might not necessarily be immediately obvious that they're problematic, that you think need to be discarded, not, not just because we're in the Trump era, but because generally, it just, in terms of advancing the goals related to journalists of color and what they're demanding, but also because it's good journalism. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of good ones. Um, one is, uh, around how we think about what police say. I think if the police department frames something for you as a journalist, we say, oh great, that's basically the truth. That's the version of the story. I think that's beginning to change, but I think as a journalistic practice, it should change. I don't think anybody should take anybody who has a stake in a story as the final word on it. It should be framed as this is their point of view. And, and that Buffalo story was a really good example. There was video. Mm -hmm. So you, and this has happened so many times now where we see a story that the police first frame, not all the time, but it happens you know, relatively frequently. Uh, there's a story that the police frame, and then you look at the video and you think, oh, well, none of this is true. This didn't happen this way at all. This man didn't fall. He was pushed. We can all see he's pushed. Then he goes down. Then you can actually see blood coming out of his head. Then you can see some officers trying to stop and help him. And they're pushed by their officers behind them, like, don't touch him that tells a completely different story. And so I think journalistically, that's something that that should change. When we covered Hurricane Katrina, we actually recognized that this was a problem. We, know, we were getting some bad information from the police in, during Katrina, New Orleans Police Department. And some of that was they were in as much chaos as everybody else was, right? They, they were looking for their family members. There was a lot of just misinformation. But when we would report that, we kind of, I, will speak only for myself, I, um, you know, would not consider like maybe this chief's data is just wrong. It used to be the chief says X number of people are dead. That, that was a data point. Um, I think we're now beginning to really um, make sure as we would do with any source to, to get a lot of um, analysis of it, weigh in and, and just slow down the conversation. The other thing that I think has I've been pushing for for a really long time, like 30 years, is understand data points generally. So, for example, I remember when someone said to me, you know, you always put in your stories, Soledad, if you're looking for the welfare mom, in quotes, you always pick a black woman. Why is that? And I was like, I, I don't know. Why is that? <laughs> I mean, I, but it was very 
typical, right? Well, the actual data where I was working at the time, the 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 actual the 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 face of the welfare mom was actually a white woman. If you were just looking at raw data, you know. But we never had conversations about well, why are we doing what we do? Why did you do that? Sometimes it's they answered the phone. It was only a twenty minute drive. I was able to get them on camera. But sometimes it's it was easier for me. It's what I had in my head. And it's my own bias around what I think this story is. And I, I, I'd like to see newsrooms challenge some of these things. So when I think people talk more openly about it, I think it's journalists just sort of saying, we're gonna challenge you on these assumptions. We don't have enough of us in newsrooms, but we have a, a bigger audience that can, can reach us. And, um, and I, you know, I, I always appreciate feedback when someone will say to me, you know, I just think framing it this way is wrong. I often like, yeah, that's interesting. Or I might disagree, but I like having that conversation around it. Well, here's an interesting question from Rebecca, who writes, was wondering what Soledad thinks about the widespread use of primarily Hispanic reporters to cover immigration issues and border issues. NPR and KQED fall into this category as well. Rarely do you see or hear these reporters cover topics like Wall Street, arts, or pop culture. Uh, what do you think, Soledad O'Brien, oh, about this? I just want to slam part. my head into the wall. I, I, she's exactly right. Sometimes it goes like this, uh, especially on election night. So um, now for a look, a closer look at the Latino vote in Texas. Uh, joining us now, Javier, Maria Elena, and uh, Joaquin, right? They come and they trudge on out, right? And they do their thing. It's like, thank you so much. You may go away now, right? Because we only need you to talk about the Latino vote. It's so overt and offensive it's it's crazy and i think again it's one of those things of like there are good reporters who can cover a lot of things so why are you not doing a better job really searching out who's just good at a conversation and so yes. I, I think it's a really also if you're going to talk about immigration there's a lot of irish immigration there's a lot of Asian immigration, right? Very rarely is the face of immigration in a story an Asian person. Very rarely is it a white person. You know, but actually, if you look at the data, there's lots of Irish immigration in New York City, for example. So, you know, it's one of those things like we in journalism help push stereotypes by kind of circling the drain around the sort of the same thing over and over again, as opposed to saying like, wow, this isn't interesting story or even asking ourselves why do we always go with latinos is it just because you know we feel like hey the the mexicans is the bigger story bigger percentage and that's representative have a conversation about that so she makes a, a great point and i think that's always been very um frustrating to me because i've seen it i've seen it roll out in front of me on every election night all the time and it's really annoying Yes, but it's also complicated, right? I mean, definitely offensive and frustrating when it's tokenizing, but it's complicated in the sense that what if you want to cover those stories? So it's really about the conditions that create a situation where you don't have the choice. And I think that's what we're trying to change. I mean, when I think about the earlier conversation that we were having about being hired for your race or ethnicity, I have a complicated relationship with it in a sense that I, I want to sometimes say, yeah, hire me because of my race and ethnicity, because you recognize it as an asset in service to accuracy, as an asset in service to reflecting the lived experiences of some people of color in our nation. That, if an organization understands that, then I feel like, I feel good about my hire and the fact that there is an understanding of, of my identity as an asset to the newsroom. There's a, a pastor who I did a documentary on named Buster Stories in um, New Jersey. And he was working as Secretary of State under Governor Christy Todd Whitman. And he told a very funny story, black guy. And he said, you know, early on, I made it very clear to her, I am the Secretary of State of uh, New Jersey. I am, you know, I'm not here to be the token black guy in this administration. And then he read a speech that she was giving to a black audience. And he's like, okay, all that stuff needs to run through me now. Don't do that. Uh, which is kind of funny, right? It's the dilemma. You both want to be the reporter, but you also are like, but I'm the Asian reporter. So I actually need to make sure that, that because I love this organization, that we're covering these stories or I'm being helpful in ways that I am knowledgeable about a community. But I think that's a little bit different than making sure that you're Hispanic reporters are only visible during a Hispanic issue. I think that's problematic. And 
And I think there are lots of ways around it. First of all, there are plenty of reporters generally who can talk about the issue. You could diversify that chunk. One reason people don't is that they feel like it's a good opportunity to get all the Latinos in right there. And if you really had uh, diversity throughout, you wouldn't feel so badly about like, let's throw people in over here. And you know, you could say, let's this this person who's doing a great job reporting on what Hispanics are going to do in Texas. We should have that person also talking about Texas generally, or uh, the electoral college, right? I mean, there obviously most journalists can cover a range of things. So, I, I understand what you're saying, and I always laugh when Buster Soyes would tell me that story because I do. You know, he didn't want to be the black Secretary of State, but he also was like, "I'm the Secretary of State in this administration. We need to make sure that we're that I'm helping you craft a message that we're all going to be proud of." I get that, um, but there are I, I I covered so many issues around African Americans as a reporter at uh, at uh, CNN, but I also was sent to cover every story at CNN, and I don't think anybody felt like my slot was just this. Although I did have a, a great expertise and won a gajillion awards covering race, I also anchored a morning show and I covered every breaking story. I spent a lot of time on John Benet Ramsey as well, and so I think that it's really important to think about diversity in using all your talent in ways so that they are covering sports and mm -hmm. arts and Wall Street. It's not brain surgery. It <laughs> it's not brain surgery. Peter in Palo Alto join us. Hi, Peter. Hi. Um, I think this dovetails with what you were just saying, but I have a question about um, the paradigm of journalistic objectivity and the intersection of that with race and lived experiences. And for example, um, I'm sure you know the, the Pittsburgh reporter who was taken off the beat because of um, a tweet that she made about um, a, a concert and it's and it's kind of like the how it was disheveling the Pittsburgh area and comparing that to protests. So, like, how do you reconcile objectivity with like lived experiences and does that is that weaponized against people of color? Peter, well, thanks. Don't let, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 Peter. I was just thanking Peter. Go right ahead, Soledad. Oh, great, and thank you, Peter. Great question, and I. I don't know the Pittsburgh story very well. Uh, I didn't report it, so I, I hesitate to jump in on that at all because I don't. I don't. I remember it very vaguely. Um, I think sometimes we think of objectivity as not having a, a point of view ever. I, I think that that's problematic. I think a lot of people who are rethinking how you are a good reporter is in being straightforward and honest and a good faith in your interviews. Um, that's what I have found. Often it's framed as you have no opinion at all, or you have no um, knowledge of a story at all, which I just don't think is really true. I think I always use the example if someone sent me out to go do a story on, you know, ice cream, if I like chocolate ice cream, wouldn't it be better if I just say, so I've always loved chocolate ice cream, but today we're going to try a bunch of different types. I'll be interested to see if I like something else. I mean, I'd rather understand where someone's coming from and what their experiences are. I also don't like to hear from non-experts. So in a, certain kinds of stories where it's actually like, I think the reporter's opinion on it is utterly irrelevant because they, they haven't covered it very much or they don't really have a valid point of view that I need to hear about. Um, but I think often our objectivity conversations are, don't say anything so no one knows that you have a point of view on something. I think that's weird because people do have a, a point of view. Um, they do have an experience. I, I'd much rather know. I'd much rather have a reporter say, I grew up in these projects, actually. So I actually have some insight in this story for you. I don't think that makes their reporting worse. I think it makes it more interesting. There are people who I disagree with terribly who might sit around and say, well, listen, I was the ambassador to China. So I, I actually have a ton of experience in this conversation. You might agree, you might disagree, but they have something to say. So I, I think we... I think we've started getting objectivity wrong because now objectivity is don't have a point of view, which brings you to, well, he says this, but he says this. And that's really terrible reporting. Well, Kimberly tweets, Soledad, do miss you still on local news. Question, why doesn't the White House press corps just boycott Trump's pressers? He's using them as an audience to rant at them, calls them fake news. It's such a great question. And um, I think partly you have to feed the beast, which is our phrase for every day. You've got a deliverable. And if you're the, who, who's going to do that? If, you're, if your job is to turn in a story at the end of the day, 
I think you'll have nothing to turn in. And that might be a big headline making maneuver, but I think it's going to be problematic for your long-term longevity. Um, John, John Carl wrote a book recently, and the, the title of the book was Front Row at the Trump Show. And I was so distressed by that title, which I've said many times, um, because, and I think that's maybe another answer to this question, because I think it, if you're there, it allows you to gather information and context for whatever else you're going to work on, right? If you're not there in the room, what value do you have for a book you want to write, an article, a TV show you need to be on? Um, so I think there is a piece of me that says, and this is how careers are built. And I will tell you, that's me going out and covering stories this is how I built my career. Um, you're in the conversation, you have something to add. But when someone calls their their experience, uh, you know, I'm sitting front row at the Trump show, it kind of breaks my heart, to be honest, right? Because you're framing your, your job as the Trump show. I, I, I just think it's so dismissive to your own, your own mm. career, your own job. Um, I just can't imagine like almost mocking yourself around what your job is. Do you so draw, I, I think that's a problem. Do you draw a line at who you criticize in the media? I'm just curious. Like, do you? I probably should. <laughs> uh, I probably should. Um, do I draw a line? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I have some friends that I've said that I thought uh, I didn't like some of the stuff that they reported. And I'll say, I love this person, but I think they're wrong. I love Faith Sally, but she did something the other day on CBS Sunday morning, I think, that was just, it was talking about Karens. I just didn't think it hit. I didn't think it worked. Hmm. I didn't like it. I, I and, guess and I asked. she's fantastic, by the way. She is smart and funny as heck and just a lovely person. But these are public people and they're creating content that is going to the public. It's not like they're sitting in their home alone, you know, and, and someone's weighing in on something they've done. You know, their, their job is a public job. And I guess the reason I ask is because I felt like you tend to direct it at more powerful institutions or, or um, like the New York Times or CNN or entities that really do have millions and millions of people tuning in. And, and it just made me wonder if that was deliberate. Uh, I do think for, for new reporters, I definitely, having been one, I think you get to make a lot of mistakes, right? If a new <laughs> reporter wrote a book called Front Row at the Trump Show, the job of a person who's a local reporter, you know, I would actually say like, wow, I, I would think that that's wrong, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I think that that's maybe a mistake of a new reporter. And so I definitely try to understand better what new reporters are, are doing. Um, but I, yeah, I certainly in terms of just big organizations, I think they have more reach as well. I don't think of it as, well, they're more powerful. I think of it as, these headlines from the New York Times are often ridiculous. It took so long for people to start using the word lie. I love Daniel Dale, but it took him a long time to say Trump is lying. Trump is lying. It's a lie. And I've had, I remember when someone was asking me a question and he said, um, you know, you say the word lie, but, but, and it went on and on. And I stopped him and I'm like, look at, listen to yourself in this question that you, this question has 75 parts because you're trying to frame what you and I both know is a lie. It's a lie. If you disagreed with me, you'd just say it's not a lie. It's true, but it's it's a lie. And I, I think reporters very rarely challenge themselves around like, why are we reluctant to call what is obviously a lie, a lie? Why? Why do we call something racially tinged when it's just racist? And And what are the rules around that? I think that's where a lot of reporters of color are really pushing back. You know, we, 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 we want to say, you know, this person said things that were racially insensitive or racially tinged. Well, they're just racist. And uh, I've always been very, without people of color at the table in the room to push people to say, no, just say the thing it is. Um, I think sometimes you can feel how those conversations don't happen um, because they're not the right people around the table. Well, Steve tweets, as far as journalistic norms that should be reassessed, I'd like to see us take a look at the idea of fairness as the highest calling. It leads to both sideism that has had some del deleterious side effects, framing the Trump administration, climate change, etc. As a debate, Jenny writes, it bothers me that news organizations, including KQED, mention the race of a suspect of a crime only if the suspect is not white. I can tell a suspect is white if one minute into the reporting no race has been given. Mm -hmm. I love KQED news, but I'd like to see this one aspect changed, either identify everyone or identify no one. 
Um, and I should actually respond to Jenny that that is a conversation that we're having, and thank you for raising that with us and, and keeping us in line. Uh, John writes, Soledad O'Brien is amazing, and I wish you were on major news channels right now. <laughs> Do you ever think of going back to anchoring for, Gosh, say, you know? Yeah. I, I have four kids. Uh, they're all teenagers. And I really, I run a production company now. So we have a lot of projects in the works. We're shooting a series for HBO. We've got another one with Discovery. We've got another project that we, you know, so we're, we're uh, we just have a lot going on production wise where I'm not in them at all. I am producer or executive producer of the project. We just wrapped up a doc. We wrapped up another doc a couple of months ago um, that I wasn't in. So uh, no, I, I, it was exhausting and I lived on airplanes and it's, it's a lot. And I think it would also be very depressing and very disheartening at this moment to be doing that day in and day out. I think a daily show would just be really kind of a miserable experience. So I'm glad I'm not doing that there. That might change. I, I like, I like being home. I like hanging on. I mean, certainly we're all home now, but I really liked running something. I got to figure out different skills that I had and I could put myself in the projects I wanted to be on. We're, we're starting, starting to work on a, a scripted project around a, a television anchor, which has been really fascinating to do. And it's not something I've ever done before. So it feels like it's a good time to try other things. Journalism disappoints me a lot. Um, and bums me out because I love journalism and I love journalists, but some days you do feel like you're shouting into the wind. And um, so no, at this moment, nope. But you know, I have good genes. I am gonna look young forever because my mom who passed away at 85 or something looked amazing. And so I feel like once I get everybody through college and I have more time to myself, I could see if I wanted to uh, going back to something um, more regular. Matter of fact, now it's on once a week. And for me, that kind of schedule is really perfect. It's just enough. My well, agents are probably like, don't say that. <laughs> Balubna writes, would love to know about opportunities for women of color in your company. What's the best way to get in touch? Uh, great. Right this moment, of course, uh, we're just trying to keep everybody we have employed. We hire a lot of women of color and a lot of the projects that we do where we outsource or we hire in kind of uh, independent contractors, we very frequently hire women of color. Uh, so we usually post those jobs and on, on all the message boards, but everything's shut down. So uh, I'd say keep trying. We'd love to hear from you. Well, Soledad O'Brien, so appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much for coming on and answering our listeners' questions. Soledad O'Brien. She is a CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions, longtime anchor reporter for NBC News, MSNBC, and CNN. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.